Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 36 of ZK Live. Tonight, we're talking to Spencer McComb from Cordson uh, Architects. I think it's Cordson Design Build. Spencer is an architect. We're going to be speaking to him about architecture, uh, about his perspective as an architect. Um, I'm going to bring him on right now, and I'll let him speak to what he does. And we'll talk about all sorts of things design-related, as well as sort of how painting fits into everything that they do. He has a very uh, unique perspective. I've spoken to him before about um, how they look at the trades and the subcontractors and um, very refreshing view for an architect. And there he is. All right. Thanks. Hello, sir. Great, great. How you doing? Good. Welcome to PK Live. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks Glad for being here. As a painter, we don't get to talk to lots of architects. So, <laughs> but we do, we paint beautiful structures designed by architects. So I am very interested to hear your point of view on things. Um, so why don't you just tell us your story? How'd you get here? Yeah, well, you painters make uh, everything we do look good or I guess by default bad. So we're grateful when, when things work really good. So thank you for that. Um, my quick background is I'm from Wisconsin, came out to uh, the East Coast for architecture school at Roger Williams, and then uh, worked for Newport Collaborative for 12 years, and I've owned courts and design architecture for 11 years, so 2009 was our beginning, so here we are. That's awesome. And where does the name Courtson Design come from? So that's my middle name. And uh, it's kind of a unique name, good for finding websites for and, uh, you know, getting your own deal. And I guess when I was first starting out, it seemed odd to call someone and they say, well, who is this? Well, Spencer McComb. Well, who are you with? Spencer McComb Architects. I, it just felt like weird. So having another name just felt a lot better to me. So, That's and as, as the business progresses, and if I'm not part of it at some point, no one's looking for the guy with the name. So, just seemed like a way to um, to avoid all that and have a unique name that's hard to spell and hard to, hard to pronounce. What could be better in a name? Right? Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but it is memorable. Your logo is very memorable. Uh, unfortunately, we, you're not on here as your business. Otherwise, everybody can see, could yeah. see. Um, where did the logo come from? You know, we, we were playing around with logos for a while. Um, and I'm sorry, for some reason, my password didn't work right at the last minute, of course. But um, yeah, the logo was just... Uh, there's a there's a company in Newport, and I, as an architect, you think, well, we can design our own logo. Come on! So we tried a bunch, and then there was a there was a company in town that um, did a lot of uh, really cool logos for running. Uh, like they do the Newport uh, Ten Mile, they do the Newport. Um, they these guys run these big running things around Newport and actually around the Northeast. So I just knew them and said, hey, could you just take a look at this? And they started sketching stuff and it looked close to what it is today. And we sort of took that and got our brainstorm going. So now we're pretty happy with it. Thanks. 
Yeah, I think it does a good job of being clear and memorable. And I know, and you're, how long have you been in that building? Uh, three years, a little over three. And so. the whole time have you had the sign out front? No, we put that sign out about six, maybe eight months ago, something like that. Well, again, I think uh, I will give you a compliment. I think it's a great sign. It's it catches attention. I notice it every time I drive by now. All right, nice. uh, you're on the you're on people's radar. Which I mean, what that's what a sign's for, I guess. You know, it's a funny thing about the signs for for the beginning of our 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 op, op, operation. I was even against signs in people's yards, and you'd think, well, that's crazy, but. I just thought, won't people get upset when they see my sign in someone else's yard? Like, oh, he's too busy, or man, he's got a lot of projects going on. So I had a lot to learn about actually running a business or advertising and all that stuff. So we started putting job signs out. And of course, tons of jobs started coming in because they saw the work we were doing. It, of course, I just, I don't know where I got that idea. So my, everyone in my company is always pushing me to put our sign up more and more. So it's funny that you mentioned it. I'll get a lot of, uh, I'll get a lot of flack at work tomorrow about that. So. But as a, I mean, I know as a crafts person, I suffered from that for a long time of like, well, I love the craft and this idea of I have to go sell myself. You know, we didn't get into it because we love selling. We get into it because we love to do what we do. Exactly. Unfortunately, you can't do what you do if you haven't sold it to anybody. I know. I know. It's uh, it's been I've learned it a, a lot in that way. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, you gotta you gotta put your name out there and sh shamelessly kind of you know get your sign out everywhere and stay with it. And you can't just do great work because no one will find out about you. Unfortunately. Yeah, I, I've wrapped my head around, I've come to terms with it because I, I believe that we're a great value and that I'm doing people a, a service by marketing to them. Yeah, yeah, That's, I like that. No. <laughs> I'm with you. Uh, so you mentioned your team. What does your team look like? Uh, so we have eight architects or folks that are on, their, on the path to being architects. Um, and then we have that would be including me, so seven others that are drawing, drafting, uh, designing, meeting with clients. And then um, we have two admin on top of that. One's bookkeeping, one's office manager. So 10 total right now. And occasionally we'll have interns that come in out of school. But right now we've got, we've filled up every desk in the place. So we're sort of finishing off another section so we can have more interns and other man, other architects as need arises. That's awesome. What kind of projects are you working on? Uh, well, well, things are different a little bit from COVID. Uh, we had almost a 50-50 split on uh, residential, uh, residential, mostly high-end residential, single family. And then the other half of our stuff would be uh, restaurants, hotels, and uh, hospitals. And so we had what we would call that hospitality arm of our, uh, our business. And we, we kind of like jumping between commercial and residential because the, 
the pace of the job is different. The, uh, the way you interact with your clients a little different. And obviously you get to design different things. So uh, we really liked, thought we were strong in both of those sectors. So we, we stayed with them, even though restaurants, um, hotels, and hospitals are completely different animals. But uh, we, we found a niche in all three of those. And then on the on the uh, on the residential side, it's obviously some brand new homes and then some renovations, and that's a mix. Right now, it's probably a little bit more heavily weighted toward uh, uh, fix, fixing up homes, so renovations, additions, just because everyone's stuck in their house and they think I gotta fix this joint up and let's call somebody. So it, it, that's just the hottest item right now. And of course, all the commercial work is really soft because everyone's struggling to figure out what they're going to do next. Yeah, I bet you don't have a lot of uh, restaurants calling. <laughs> no, we have some great clients who are opening up restaurants right now and thinking about new ones and buying land. So definitely those entrepreneurial guys are just so great for our whole economy and especially for us. So we're just grateful for them and there's guys in the works, but yeah, it's hard to pull the trigger right this second when you're struggling just to to make ends meet as a restaurateur. Or that maybe they need that much more now to design a profitable restaurant with all the spacing where it needs to be. You probably need a, a someone who knows what they're talking about and can think of, have you been designing spaces like that? Not really, not yet, but I think everyone's just thinking this is a, a bump in the road, so who knows, you know, you kind of uh, see how that, I guess, kind of works out. But right, no one's, no one's designing specifically to COVID right this second, other than the plexiglass stuff, but everyone's kind of to do. But um, we have been talking to some hospital networks about what to do when the, when you can't do these tests in the middle of parking lots, because it's the middle of January. So we're just at the beginning of talking about that with hospital networks. So we'll see how that goes. So did you get in, how, how did you get into those markets from the residential? Was it like a client that happened to work at one of these places or? Yeah, you know, so, so the, the beauty of what we do is um, you're dealing with folks that are higher income folks that have usually either started, um, started a business or are high up in a business or whatever. So what happens is you're sort of dealing with that same pool of folks that, um, you know, are entrepreneurial in nature. And so that just leads to, hey, I heard you did this home, can you do this? And so, and I think being in Newport drives a lot of the hospitality side anyway. So since we're the biggest, if not one of the biggest firms in, in the area, it just kind of, uh, was was an easy um and a lot of guys are just residential only architects so when when we can stamp and run commercial jobs it, it opens a lot of doors up for us do you have specific people on your team that will work on those types of projects versus residential or does everyone do everything uh yeah they, people tend to like one or the other uh, but so yes i, I think there's certain guys who know a lot about, let's say, hospital design, which is very specific and has a, actually its own set of codes. 
and so once we get a team that knows that, they sort of tend to go that way. And um, but the host, the hotels and the um, restaurants, that's kind of a mix of all of us. Um, so it's not specific to any one um, one architect. Although we have got guys in our office that are really strong at code. Um, compliance and code issues. So they sort of help out. We, we sort of try to plug in as many people to one job as possible. So we get a, a, a lot of different looks and a lot of different people working on it. So instead of just isolate everybody with their own job, try to cross pollinate a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. So I would imagine those commercial jobs are more of a utilitarian design and like that's the most important part is the utility and then the houses have to be aesthetically pleasing more or is that not true? Well, um, the beauty of restaurants is that most of the guys want a really special space, right? They want a memorable space. So they don't want just cookie cutter. How can you solve it for the least amount of money kind of design stuff. So from a restaurant standpoint, I really like those because it lets us have fun be creative with the with the restaurateur who are usually creative folks to begin with. So that's a, that's a fun one. So I think restaurants are right in the same market of, of, of being really um, fun design wise. Uh, hotels a little bit, you gotta obviously put the pieces together, but again, the same thing. No, no hotel owner wants just some drab hotel that looks kind of dingy. So they want a spark. They want something aesthetically pleasing. When you're laying out MRI suites and cancer centers, um, there's a part of it you want to just do your best job. You think of who, who's going to be in there enjoying slash having to go through these things. If we can bring a little bit of cool factor to it and make it nice and pleasant and obviously follow all the codes, that's great. But we sort of give ourselves a kick in the butt to try to make them as good as we possibly can uh, so that. So the poor soul that's in there, you know, dealing with cancer or whatever is, has some inspiration that, wow, this feels really nice. And uh, so we, we try to sneak it in wherever we can. That's awesome. So with that team, do you, as a company, do you have a sort of design aesthetic that you would say that you lean toward? Is it yours that you try to help everyone below you sort of go toward? Or what does that look like? Well, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this before, but my, my approach is to say, okay, the prod, I kind of think it's not great if all of our projects start looking the same, um, because you're going to have a different owner, you're going to have a different location, you're going to have a different, uh, maybe entryway versus view corridor versus privacy issues. So all those things start working together to create a different they're in different neighborhoods. Uh, one's up on a hill, one's down low, one's surrounded by trees, one isn't. Uh, so all those things start to play into a design. And then we're talking to the owner a lot about aesthetics throughout the process. And believe it or not, people want different stuff, right? That's maybe not believe it or not, but that's <laughs> easy to understand that everybody's got their own little taste. And even though maybe two clients come in and say, oh, I saw your website, I like what you do. They're still going to have their specific, hey, I kind of like you know, modern farmhouse versus uh, shingle style versus, you know, colonial feel or simple campy stuff. And as we branch out and do projects from, you know, down in, in the Caribbean to 
Colorado to New, New Hampshire, I mean, I hope we're not designing the same house for everybody. I hope they look cool in their own surrounding, fit in with what they're doing there. And we're, we're on it enough to, to really understand what's going on there. Uh, so, and also we get bored easily and, and want to try a new challenge. So someone comes to us and wants a French chateau, well, we're going to get into it and, and do the best chateau we can, not say, oh, no, we only do this other thing. Um, so it's a little different approach uh, than saying, hey, we designed this way and you better like it. It's kind of the opposite of that, where we try to try to push ourselves into all these different things. And in Newport, we got such a wide variety of different styles and buildings from these sort of big mansions that we're, you know, either messing with or adding on to or doing carriage houses for uh, all the way to brand new houses, you know, in the middle of an undeveloped land. Those are going to look completely different because they're just in a different spot. And if we just put a quartz and design building all over the place, I feel like that's not really doing our job and nor is it really helping out the greater community. But so aesthetically, that makes a lot of sense. Would you then say that, but you, I would guess you probably have a uh, experience that <laughs> is oh, for sure. aim. Yeah. What's that? So, like? Yeah. So when we're trying to um, talk to our clients, um, we're trying to make sure that they have this unique experience where um, when they come to an architect, most people haven't used an architect before. I hear that almost at the beginning of every meeting. I've never used an architect before. So it's they're new to the process. And of course, we're, we're, we're seasoned at the process. So we do it all the time. So we pull them in, um, but then we try to act as a guide to them and let them feel like they're driving the bus, not us who, um, we're, we're there to understand what they want, show them multiple schemes, give them pricing as best we can all along the way so that they have this, you know, they, they feel like they're empowered to uh, have a great experience throughout the process. So we talk with our team a lot about that is how can we give more value to our clients and how can their experience be amazing? Because, man, we've all heard horror stories or seen horror stories where the build process did not go well. Um, and that can start with the architect. It can, the ball can get dropped at any, any number of levels, but man, if we can give them this amazing experience of designing a custom home for themselves, you don't get to do that many times in a lifetime, maybe once, maybe twice. So it should be an amazing process to, to be creative with, you know, how your family's going to operate and how you're going to use this land and mess with this house or add on to it. And so it, hopefully comes out our goal is to make it so that that client is so jazzed up about their experience they want to do another one um or at least tell their friends how great it was yeah because it's not the the a unstressful process no it's all it's there's landmines everywhere you know and and so as a as as we as architects we feel like our job is to be a guide um, and kind of show them, hey, here's going to, is there potholes coming up here? So let's avoid it. This is how it's going to happen. And, uh, you know, there's lots of things that can go wrong. You think of a, 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 just a house probably has, I don't know, 50,000 decisions in that house at one point or another to what kind of hinges to what the hardware is to the septic field to, you know, there's just decisions galore. 
And you make, as a builder and architect, you make a couple of ones that the owner doesn't like. Well, they'll, you know, they'll hold you up as the worst uh, guy in the world. So we try to talk about how that whole thing works and how it's kind of connected together. And that uh, it's a process of, of finding a great opportunity the whole time. And looking for those opportunities throughout the process. Yeah. Do you think being from the Midwest has helped you? You're, <laughs> you, I'm from the Midwest as well. Oh, I didn't know that. I grew up in Kansas. Um, oh, we are obviously much nicer people. <laughs> of course. And I, I, I find that it, it helps with customer service and it just, you know, and it's nice to talk to an architect like yourself that seems down to earth and um, not like full of yourself. And, you know, there's, cause we know some architects can be pretty fancy and I would imagine clients probably like that about you. Have you noticed that? Um. Well, I don't want to throw any other architects under the bus, but um, I think the the Midwest thing has, has served me really nicely. You know, it's sort of a self-deprecating, you know, everybody's your best friend. Uh, it's going to work out, sort of optimistic work ethic stuff. Um, you know, just being forged like that as a kid um, and having, you know, parents and family that are still there and buddies, it just it's really a, I think it's a nice way to look at the world. Um, coming out here, it was funny, you know, being roommates with New York, New Jersey kids that were just tough as nails and thought everyone was out to get them. Uh, and me being like, everybody's your friend. It's cool. You know, uh, <laughs> it was a fun, it was a fun world to play around with them a little bit. Cause they were so concerned about like how they looked and I was ready to make fun of myself uh, and screw around and, I think ultimately it just breaks the ice a little better with most people. And, uh, you know, I think regardless of what profession we are in, we're all in the people business, right? So we all have to work with people, staff, clients, you know, coworkers, you know, the whole subs, the, you know, all the trades. And so if you, if you have trouble with people and you're pissing them off all the time, I just don't see how you get anywhere. You know, it's the vinegar and honey thing. Um, and I just try to, when I'm, you know, talking to anybody on the site, uh, especially subs or whatnot, I try to leverage what they know, knowing that yourself as a painter know a lot more about painting than I do. I know a few things and maybe how I want it to look, uh, but I bet you there's even some things that you know that would make whatever I'm trying to pull off better. But if I come in with a strong hand saying, I want it like this, if I don't want to see a brushstroke, whatever it is, uh, giving you a hard time or making myself out to be like the king of the castle, I, I think I'm going to get less out of you as, as a tradesman instead of saying, hey, how did you do that? I've got a question about something in my own house. I'll sort of make up another story. Uh, uh, not that it's a story, but another issue I'm having with painting, get your advice on it. So you realize that I'm actually looking to you as the authority on it. Um, and not to say that I'm somehow a better painter than someone who's been doing it all their lives. Uh, no chance, no chance. I'm going to be better plumbing, electrical, you framing, you name it, they're going to be better than I am. And so if that, if my interaction with that person on the site is one of, uh, let me learn from you. Here's what I'm after. Maybe you have a better idea, man, you just open the door right up. 
maybe that's the Midwest in me that's gets gets that going pretty easily. Yeah, I I'd like to think so because I <laughs> I I have a similar thing. But when we spoke earlier, that did that is what stuck out to me is right. the lack of pretentious or greater than or like you said, king of the castle mentality as it relates to all the poppers down there who are putting together my amazing idea. Like, you definitely don't have that. Um, could you explain to us sort of your, how you approach uh, working with a general contractor, I guess, first, and then, and then how that kind of works with all the subs as well? Yeah, so, you know, uh, the general is obviously the guy who's, who's organizing the cats. And um, architects tend to put themselves in an adversarial almost role with the builder. And I've just found that, one, I can't pull that off because I don't even have that in me. But two, I found it works a lot better when you say, hey, look, we're all in this team together. I can make you look good. You can make me look good. So let's let's try to just be buddies on this thing and figure out how we can catch each other's back and also make each other ha have a better product. And I would say that that has opened up so many doors for me that even builders who have sometimes first contact with a client will refer them to us instead of other architects because they just feel that confidence between them that we're going to be all not looking out for each other at the detriment of the client, but I think at the, at the benefit of the client, because they've got a team that's like, we're all in this together. And when you get the, when you get the feeling as a general contractor, the architects looking to catch you or get you on something, I think, you know, you're just not going to play nice in the sandbox with that guy. And so that's been my mentality for that. And then again, the way that, the way that I interact with subs, when I get that opportunity, and sometimes it's a lot, sometimes I'm just coordinating or contracting or talking to the general, but um, the more I can leverage their knowledge base so I can learn something through the process, I think that's a win for me. And typically people walk through fire for you if they know that you care about them, you, you respect them and you, you, you know, you expect the best out of them as well. Uh, you know, it's just a good motivator of people, I think, versus the fear side, which is like, you know, I'll have you thrown off this job. Don't you know who I am? You know, it's, it's two ways of motivating people, love and fear. And so I, I think the, the love one's a little better for me. Um, so when when something comes up if i don't if i'm not in at war <laughs> with spencer i'm much more likely to have the conversation and bring things up and not just brush them under the rug and move on and then have a bigger issue come up later i think there is a lot of lot to be said for that team mentality yeah. uh, and when when you find it in somebody else you know you want to do more work with them and it's it's a two-way street it's nothing nothing underhanded you just you want to work with people who are are friendly and know that they got your back and we're all in this together kind of business um just feels like a better product for the client all in all um and sometimes jobs don't go that way but i try to work with people that that are of that same mindset and then it works out a lot better yeah i mean i know we we were we refer clients to designers and architects you know a lot more designers than architects but i've i've
referred clients sex before. Yeah. And that's the first thing that like goes through your mind is what's this going to be like? Like th this is my client. I have a relationship. They like me. They trust me. Now I'm going to bring in this other person. And what's that going to look like? Is this, are we going to all be on a team now or am I bringing on my new competitor <laughs> to go to battle with? And yeah, yeah you're obviously not going to be inviting on people who you know you're going to have to have an adversarial struggle with. You want to bring on your, your, your colleagues that you can go be a team member with. Yeah. And it, it, it's funny that that's not apparent to everybody, but that's almost like, it sounds so obvious when we're talking here, but in the real world, it seems like people revert to that, you know, I got to protect the Ford and I, you know, make sure that everyone knows I'm the, I'm the man. Uh, it just seems ridiculous to me. But um, anyway, that's kind of where we go. And uh, we've, we've, we've gotten a lot of success, I think, in just that referral, the referral network. Although I try not to put it out there as like, I'm trying to do this because I'm trying to get a referral out of someone. Like once you put that on it, put that on the relationship, seems like you're, you're doing it for means that aren't uh, like alternative means that feel take takes away from the trueness of that relationship. But maybe it's the Midwest in me, but I just like getting to know people that are great at what they do and enjoy it and like showing up on Monday mornings and, you know, are passionate about what they're after because I am. So I want to be around people that are like that. And so I, when I, when I find people that are like that, I just want, want to just feed into that and feed off of that. And so, and that can come in all stripes from all different angles, all different walks of life. Um, but yeah, it's great. It's great when you like what you do, becomes play, right? When work becomes play, life becomes really easy. And uh, I feel like in our, in our firm, we talk about that a lot and it makes us enjoy being around each other. We better be, you know, we're around each other a lot. We're around our clients a lot. So hopefully it's a great experience for everybody. And if it's not, we gotta make some changes real quick. I love it. And the referrals then are the consequence of just, which is that's all of my successes come from just being a good person, like yeah. doing the next right thing. And like magically it snowballs because you don't have to look backwards. You don't have to cover lies up with other lies. Like <laughs> it's just so much easier. It is easier. <laughs> <laughs> it's our Midwest. We're naive, what everyone would say. But. There's no question. I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm naive, but it's working for me. So I'm going to stay with naive and uh, trusting. And, uh, you know, a couple of people will snake you, but, you know, it's, it's really sort of like that one or 2%. And so, man, I'll, I'll take the 99. So all day. How did you go from working by yourself to starting to bring people on? What did that look like? I know it's not been the easiest thing. It was a whole new thing to go learn for me to, to have a team of people oh, yeah. manage people and all those things. Yeah. Uh, great question. So when I first started, it was at the height of the like 2008 and nine recession. So the firm I was with was going gangbusters. And then all of a sudden, like everything died, which happened to a lot of people right around that time, and especially hit hard architecture. So, you know, my, my guys who I worked for, like, I would be the last person ever to be fired felt felt I was, you know, just right in the team, a good faithful servant. 
you know, they came in and basically said, look, we got, you're going to do fine on your own. We don't have enough jobs for everybody. And, you know, the sky's falling. So, uh, you know, that was the impetus to start the company. So then I'm working, but a lot of the people that I worked for under that company, you know, sort of found me after I left with, with full, full knowledge of the company that we were leaving, that they were going to come with me and the company was fine. They were great guys at Newport Collaborative that set me up to win on my own. And, uh, but I, I soon found that I couldn't keep up with the work, even at that dr- you know, dreary time of 2009 when you know, all, the stock market was down and everyone was running for the hills. Uh, I had enough work to feed myself and then really quickly became enough work to feed other people. So we just started doing peer-to-peer. You know, architecture is a you know, game where you can kind of be in your house and you can have people in other spots. And so we would just you know, email and talk on the phone and back and forth. And these are guys that most of them had also left the same company or, or got laid off. So we, I'd worked with all these guys before. So the, then the team just slowly built from there. And, uh, you know, of those guys, you know, two or three are still with us. And uh, we've been through, like any job, there's, there's turnover where folks come and go. But we've got a really solid core. The last three years have been really solid. Um, but then going from that sole practitioner to, you know, running a company of 10 plus, suddenly you're not a technician anymore, not just an architect. I've got to learn about like HR issues and 401k stuff and all that. Um, and that I've really, uh, I've joined, I joined a group that of, of CEOs uh, that we get together once a month and, and sort of sharpen each other um, as a group. And that's been hugely helpful the last three years. I feel like I've learned feel like I had an MBA in the last three years just from these guys who are wise old sages and different different uh, firms and not not architecture firms but different uh, Rhode Island companies for the most part that get together and we just feed feed off each other um, and learn from each other so that's awesome what's that how did you find that group you know, I heard about the group when I first started my company and I thought, oh, I need that because I don't know anything about business. So can I join? And they're like, well, you got to have, you know, 10 people and you got to have, you, they, there was all these standards because they didn't want, like, they wanted people had kind of the same problems <laughs> talking to each other, uh, which seemed like very exclusive when I first asked them. And then uh, and then later when I when I actually had you know, the billables to, to play games with them or not be invited, I should say. Um, and the number of people, it was an easy fit. I just, you know, kind of found out about them again and realized that my company had grown to the point that now I was sort of, it was okay for me to join them. Uh, it was, it's a Christian organization. So it's Christian men, or not Christian men and women. Uh, so there's a basis on that. And there's a, a week, uh, a monthly meeting where they go through principles and stuff uh, on those topics. But then you present your company and you, you talk about issues you're having and everyone weighs in on it. And it's like having a board of directors, which is awesome for us. sole practitioner who's trying to make up the best HR policy and, you know, deal with this or that uh, issues with um, our own staff and, and clients and all those, all those weird business things that no one ever teaches you. I get, I get to go ask these guys what to do. <laughs> yeah. How'd you yeah. get 
first uh, project? Let's say it again. How'd you get the first project that you worked on as a as your own company? Oh, uh, I kind of had a side book of business going um, with people, friends and family and whatnot that kind of grew. So I had a little, you know, I draft with people at night and on the weekends a little bit. Uh, and then, and then the, there was a couple of big jobs that I had in Newport Collaborative that were at the tail end. So during the construction phase and my company said, Hey, you can take these clients and make them yours if you'd like. So I called those guys and let them know, but there was uh, you know, one memorable one in Carnegie Abbey, the, um, just a family that I had basically, they only knew me and my team at Newport Collaborative. So making the switch was really easy for them because it was the same team just, we could bill them less than we did before, which they were very happy about and uh, see that project through. And then, you know, just that referral network, people know people and hand them off. So uh, yeah, I look back at a lot of those early clients and just so grateful that they, I guess, took a risk on me. Uh, I was pretty seasoned at that point uh, in my career, but uh, still really grateful that they, you know, jump, jumped out of Newport Collaborative and came and did stuff with me and we're still good friends with almost all those people today. So are you, I would imagine you're part of like architectural organizations that you have to have certifications. What, what is it? What is, do you have continuing education? How do you like feed your architect side as far as knowledge and, and all those types of things? Well, I think architecture is unique in that you almost never can master it. It is just this crazy game of there's always a new product, a new design, a new take, a new way you could have done some things. You know, the design world is just so limitless. Uh, knowledge of product, you know, even running a company, running a business, running a team, managing those things, managing the client. So I feel like we're all getting better every day at all of those things. So it's, it's uh, how do we get better at those things? There is CEUs that the uh, AIA puts out, uh, which basically covered every state's requirement for continuing education. So we have to take like 18 to 24 uh, continuing education units or hours per year. Um, but that just scratches the surface. Hopefully as an architect, you're just learning like gobs every day. It is just like drinking out of the fire hose every day because you're learning something about something you never knew about, whether it's some weird thing that a client wants to do or something you saw somewhere. Because we have a wide range of projects, like I spoke about, you got you know, hotel stuff, uh, we'll do a church, we'll do, you know, it's just like, there's always something new to learn. And uh, we just feel like that's what kind of, one of the cool things about what we get to do is it's learning so much about, uh, even learning from our clients about how they live and maybe a cool way that something that they want specific in their custom home, uh, that'll just drive us to figure that out a little better um, and lay it out a little better. Uh, so yeah, it's just a continual quest for learning. Uh, it's not a quest, you just almost have to because things are flying at you so fast. We have you know, a lot of projects in the office, so we get to see a lot of different things. And uh, I think it makes us better for each one individually as well, because we've seen so, so many different takes of houses or restaurants, hotels, hospital work, that it's uh, just constant. Yeah, I, I, I was required to do no continuing education as a painter. I got to still keep painting. 
I, I asked that question because and I had a feeling there's stuff, but I know there's stuff because you're in an industry that has a, a bar, uh, some sort of standards that have to be met. And I think that's very valuable in an industry. And we, I mean, I, I just started a painting school to try to teach people how to paint and how to have like a passion for the craftsmanship and mm -hmm. to try to elevate. Cause unfortunately I think my trade has this very low bar and because of that, there's just not a lot of people who could describe their painting the way you just described architecture. Right. And, but I'm that way. I, everything you said is exactly how I feel about painting. And every day I'm learning more and every day I like, and it's of course to me. And it's like, yeah, well, if I had to do 18 to 22 hours of some continuing education, that would be so easy. Cause I do that every day. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So maybe it's a mindset uh, level and, uh, you know, architects, I think they have, we have so much to learn every day from so many people, including like yourself. Like I'm sure I could sit down and pick your brain for hours as well. We could switch this interview around and I'd probably get a lot out of it because, you know, sometimes I'm in there trying to tackle my own work. Like I'll, I like to, I like to be handy as well and, and do projects start to finish at my own house. Um, or for other people, habitat, kind of things like that, or friends that need something done. I just love it because um, you get, you know, when you're drawing all day and designing all day, it's pretty rewarding to physically build something, you know, instead of just the drawing side. Sure, it's a craft in itself, but man, there's a lot, there's a lot of gratification in actually building, painting, finishing, sanding, like the whole show all the way to the end. And it, it makes it makes me better. And I encourage everyone that's at our company, just get into projects, start something that you have no idea what you're doing, because it'll be great. You'll learn a ton on the way, a lot more in a textbook will give you a lot more in a CEU will give you. So yeah, uh, I'm with you, man. It's, it's amazing. And it's sort of limitless, because you can always get better and learn more. Yeah, and that's what I, I'm this one of the reasons I'm doing this show and why I post the way I do and it's like I I want other people to feel and well I think just painters when when we grow up and we work for paint contractors we don't look our bosses are generally not looking at what's the next new product what's the best way I can serve my client like it's very much repetitive humdrum why do you care so much it's yeah. like and you know I people tell me that my energy about this stuff is infectious. And I think it is because once you change your mindset and you're like, Oh, well, what about this? And what is it? Painting becomes funny. And yeah. it's, it's something I, I do hope more and more painters get into and, and all the trades and anyone, anyone doing what they're doing. It's like, why aren't we continuing to grow? And I think the painting trade has fairly stagnated for quite a while. There's not a lot of cutting edge coding <laughs> practices that are different. Um, yeah. Although we do implement a number of them. They're yeah. not being sold at Sherwin-Williams and, you know, Sherwin-Williams is like, well, here's another, this, this paint's easier to apply than the last paint. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, cool. Like <laughs> moving on. And no one's like, well, what does the client want? What could the client possibly desire? What if we were able to reformulate the paint and charge a little more? we could give them this like really long lasting, more beautiful product. And yeah. um, it's cool. What does it take to be so, cause there's a world of like architects, certified architects, and then like 
the shady underbelly of like <laughs> not quite certified architects. Yeah. What does that look like? Uh, so, you know, uh, the, the registered architects would be the, the right word, but um, so you go to, you go to school at a um, accredited school it's either a five or a six year degree. There's a sort of an accelerated five year version, which is sort of rare these days. I actually graduated that way, but most of the time it's a undergrad for four, then, then two more. Then there's three years of intern development where you have to work for and document working for a registered architect. So that's like, now we're talking almost a decade that you're not a registered architect from when you started as a freshman in school. Um, so that weeds out a lot of people. <laughs> um, the Roger Williams, were, the school that I went to, it, if you look at it in plan, it's shaped like a funnel. There's a lot of kids in the freshman year wing, so it's wide. And then as you get down toward the seniors or the fifth year or six years, it's really small. So they shaped it knowing a lot of people were going to bail. Um, and then um, once you graduate from that, then you do your internship document all that stuff and then you sit for it's a seven i believe it's seven day tests um or or seven tests which is daunting right because at that point you're out of school you're working you're enjoying life you got weekends and nights free again and uh-oh three years later about the time you forgot how to be a student you got to dive back in and just like learn all these just refresh all these these issues uh some of which you've learned as you're an architect, but others, you know, like all these kind of um, tests like this, they, they, they're looking for very specific information. And there's a good chance you just don't remember that from school or whatever you hadn't done in a while. So you gotta sharpen up on all these things and then just pray to God that you pass these tests one after another. Um, uh, and so that gets you registered which wasn't really a question, but so once you're registered, it seems like architects want to then protect the fort. Maybe it's a good idea to make sure people went through all those rigors of the tests and the intern development program and the schooling and all that stuff. Um, but they, I think architects feel like now we're in a special group and we need to make it hard for other people to get into this group. Um, and so you got to go through that. There's really no other way to shortcut that thing. So if you didn't do any of those things, maybe you didn't take your test. Maybe you didn't come from a uh, uh, accredited program, it, maybe you didn't do your intern development program, whatever. If you missed any of those steps, you're going to be a, probably a fabulous architect that just doesn't have their stamp. And so that leaves them in a bind. And I've got tons of friends that are as talented or beyond talented as I am, who just didn't put all those pieces of the puzzle together for some reason. And they're really talented, but they're, they're not going to be a registered architect. And so it's sort of a shame. They can design single family homes forever, especially in Rhode Island. I think New York, they don't let you do that. But most states, you can design homes as big as you want, as much as you want, and, and just be a quote unquote designer, architectural designer. But it's when you get into the commercial world that a stamp's required and then they're kind of in a tough, tough shape. Um, which is sad for me, knowing some of these guys who are just as talented and knowledgeable as I am, and they're struggling to have their, you know, to have their stamp on things. So they got to either refer the project out of their office or something like that. But I, I think 
I'm not like us versus them at all. You know, I'm grateful. There's guys in my office that may never get registered, but as long as they're under my stamp, it's fine with me. You know, they can do it. It's just a feather in your cap when you become a registered architect, because when people ask you at a party, what do you do for a living? And you've got to do this song and dance about, well, I work for an architect and I'm, I'd like, you know, <laughs> you can just say I'm an architect, you know, they go on for half an hour about, you know, your, your deal. That's interesting. So are there, I, my first thing I'm like, there must be some like incredibly famous, unbelievably talented, not registered architects. Are there any, like, are there guys that are like, they're just like, they're so artistic and like, talented, yeah. like I can't sit through class. So I don't know if I know like a famous one, but yes, you're right. Like guys who just didn't want to deal with school or just weren't cut out for it. I think a lot, a lot of what happens is they graduate from school and then they just don't want to face those tests, you know, because if you fail one, you feel like a total failure. They make you wait six months to take another one. Everybody kind of knows. It's just a daunting task, you know. I, I was lucky to get them over with pretty soon in my career, so no one was really paying attention <laughs> to me uh, at that point. So, um, but, I, I uh, you know, yeah, I've got buddies, uh, really, really great architects that just aren't architects yet or may never be in that in that official way. But man, they're, they're great. And, you know, folks that work for me as well. And then there's folks that fly right through, they get their license, but they're, you know, sometimes not that passionate about it. I got a college buddy who got his license, did all those things. And he teaches, uh, teaches school right now for chemistry, went back, got his teacher's degree. I'm just like, what? You did all that? You did all that. And now you're doing something else. God bless him. He's happy. He couldn't be more thrilled. Does little side projects at his house and for friends. Just amazing path for him. That's crazy. But so those people who are not architects, they can work for you and for all the other. They can. And they can have their own firm. Uh, they just can't do commercial work. Okay. So I, I the the idea is that, um, you know, the license ensures that you, at some point in your life, knew all these codes and all these regulations <laughs> and uh, that you're going to be better suited to protecting the public. So that's that's the reality. They want to make sure like a life safety plan and, you know, how far away the exits are from each other and all those things. Really, no one else cares about that. Right except for maybe a building inspector, the structural guy doesn't care, framer doesn't, no one cares about those safety issues in a commercial building. And so I think that's why they sort of limit the, the group to registered architects for that, for those reasons. Just, I think in public safety reasons. What's the tallest building that you've ever designed? <laughs> oh man, <laughs> New England's tough because Every, they got all these height restrictions on everything and all these towns that we do. But, you know, I, there's a clubhouse at Carnegie Abbey. It's got like, it's probably 54 feet to the top of it. Uh, we have like a tower in the middle of it. It's now called the Equidnet Club in Portsmouth, but um, it's a sprawling golf course clubhouse. And it's got these three towers and the center tower is probably the tallest one that I can think of. 
Uh, I'm sure I'll think of something later, but <laughs> probably not very tall. <laughs> so you're not dealing with high-rise construction then? No, I have not. Uh, most of our stuff is three to four stories tops. That's just where we are and who we service. I'm sure if I was in a uh, major metropolis, I'd probably be dealing with bigger, taller buildings from time to time, but uh, we're pretty limited on the stuff that we do. We're grateful for it. Those skyscrapers can be designed by New York City dudes all they want. <laughs> I'm happy for them. I'm sure there's, I'm sure they have their own struggles uh, in life, but. Along this is another ridiculous painter question. I don't know why it matters. Yeah. Yeah. What's the largest square footage residence that you've ever designed? Uh, I'd say 12, 12 to 14,000. Some of these, you don't really count all the square footage because garages and things. And, and then usually those people add on to those big houses later, a couple of years later, and put more things over the garage or off the other side. Um, but they're massive. I mean, <laughs> if you think of, and what's funny is most folks, you know, are doing their dream house after their kids get out of college. Or, you know, it's right around that time, they've sold their company, kids are in college or graduated from college, and then they're like, we're doing it, we're building the our dream. It's two people. <laughs> the kids are never coming back. I mean, they they sort of think they're going to, maybe in COVID they did. But now, you know, it's funny, it's sort of the same story from a lot of these guys. Well, my kids will come back and they're gonna have kids someday. and. And maybe they do, and they got this killer house, but it's just funny we're designing these, you know, twelve thousand square foot home for two people, and they don't even go into half of them. But <laughs> do you have a lot of conversations about going smaller and nicer, like <laughs> square foot, maybe lower square feet? Is that something yeah. you talk about a lot? Uh, we do. You know, early on in our process, we're talking a lot about budget because in architecture that can get away from you really fast. I mean, we can draw lines just farther away from each other and a little fancier and boom, we've doubled their budget. So no client wants to hear that, but it is part of the process because you get down with a wish list and your client, and you're, I got this cool idea and they've got cool ideas and you're drawing, drawing, drawing. And then it hits the, you know, the contractor's desk and he's like, that's oh, double your budget, of course everyone's upset at that point. So we try to be talking about the budget throughout. And a lot of times that means tightening our belt on the first go round um, because the square footage costs just start getting bigger than they want. So that brings the walls back in and then we got to figure out how to do more in the same space, you know, share space. It can be used this way in the morning and this way in the afternoon. And, um, but but maintaining the, the cost per square foot, which means we're ensuring them quality build. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it just naturally goes that way, but everyone usually starts off with their eyes are bigger than their stomach and they, you know, want the big dog and I want, I want this big house and I want all these stuff in it, but usually the big bad budget comes to break up that party and everyone's got to sober up quick and uh, figure out what they really want. And that allows us to, you know, create really meaningful homes that are sited right on perfect for them. And every corner of that thing's designed just for the way they live. 
and the way the building sits on the land um, and so on. So it kind of it all works out, but that, that's sort of the way our process brings, brings people back to the reality of, of the square footage numbers. Uh, so we can do, you know, really good work and not just these monster bombers. Um, yeah, I, I feel like there's like the 90s, early 2000s had like all those McMansions that were being built. Yeah. Where footages were unbelievable. Yeah. And all the details were like an afterthought, but they had <laughs> big square footage. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think there's there's probably certain clients that are maybe still after that a little bit, but we don't, we don't really find it that much where it's that showy mentality. Um, most of our clients don't even, they don't even think about that sort of thing. And so it's more about trying to figure out how to, you know, they have, usually they have a program, which was the stuff they want in their house. So, uh, you know, how many bedrooms and, and need an office and a lot more talk about home offices recently, obviously, but, um, it's been, it's kind of, it's kind of neat to see, uh, you know, people really wanting to do quality and we're showing them pictures of our previous work and we're showing them drawings of things that, that are quality. And we're talking about how to get the, get the most quality, but it's always at the expense of some budget. So we've got to talk about how to do quality um, and then talk about how to do it on the, on the budget that they have. And everybody's got a budget, even the, even my most uh, wealthy clients who are astronomical <laughs> compared to anything that I'll ever see. But um, they still have a budget at some point. They have a tolerance about how much this thing's worth and how much they're going to invest into this piece of property. So uh, everybody's got a bottom line and, and then design into that. Have you used fine paints of Europe often in your projects? Is that something you're aware of? I, we, I know we might have talked about it earlier. I'm always well, here. I, uh, it's funny, I mentioned earlier about that I like to tackle projects that I are kind of probably way over my head and then see if I can build them. Because I think, well, I could draw them. I'm sure I could build a thing. You know, great, <laughs> famous last words. But anyway, so we, we had this, play, uh, this room in our house that was sort of a quasi closet. Our kids like slept there when they were little, sort of, you know, imagine like a little nanny's thing off the master bedroom. Anyway, we turned it into a full closet, which had built-ins everywhere um, that I built. And then I just knew that the paint job that I had gotten on other projects just wasn't, that I had done or that someone had helped me on, um, just wasn't, I wanted to try some new stuff. And I'd heard a contractor who had discovered Fine Paints of Europe. And um, it was actually a female. She was was sort of into painting, but sort of contractor and whatever. She started talking and talking and talking about Fine Paints of Europe. And I said, well, I got to try it. Let's see it. So figured out where she bought them and then uh, ordered the stuff and and then and then applied it. And it was it was definitely different definitely a different experience from the person actually applying it. Um, and then I had, I had some help from spraying some stuff because I just didn't have those tools yet, but someday I'll get those tools and do some spray with it. But you have to come to our shop. I'll set you up in the booth. I'll get right. you in and we can <laughs> spray something. <laughs> Great. Cause I'm always building crap, but I need to paint. So that'd be Good. Awesome. Yeah. You have an open <laughs> invitation. You ever want to come into the shop, 
we have all sorts of different equipment and yeah. i'd love to learn see this is exactly what i'm talking about like i'd love to learn because i i don't i don't have any ability to learn how to like do really good spray painting i think i can do pretty good with a brush in my hand but not as good as someone like yourself but you know i'm getting there uh, but this the spray painting i'd love to know more yeah now did you use a high gloss or did you use their flagship product the high gloss oil or yeah 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 so there's an island in the middle and that one has the has the i don't know if it was all the way high gloss. i think it was yeah you can see a reflection in it so oh, it, it's it's either high gloss or satin so i would it, imagine I, it may have been one tick off the highest i wasn't that bold enough i well i didn't trust myself enough to do the full, the full one but uh yeah it was mirror if you can see yourself in it it's got to be hollow neck brilliant okay which yeah. is their flagship product that we use a ton of that's yeah. like you saw especially when you touch it now today there's no paint like it yeah and i've just noticed how well that paint it's like two two years old now all the nicks and little dings that happen in and around like hangers and stuff. And it just doesn't, doesn't do anything. It's yeah. just like solid. Yet my, my uh, kitchen, which spray painted with other stuff, uh, man, there's dings and scratches all over the place. It's a couple of years older, but um, I have a feeling that, you know, if I knew better, I probably would have yeah. that way. And that's, that's what we talk to clients a lot about is all right well what are you looking to do and let me give you the options and like you said like i that's my expertise and there's pre-cat lacquer and then there's two-part polyurethane and they're on opposite ends of the spectrum and will you pay a little more for some 2k poly today yes you will but <laughs> will your stuff nick and ding no it's going to be incredibly dirty yeah. the same the day we walk away yes generally so, but not a lot of painters are there doing that. That's, that all came from me wanting to research and learn and push and try. And, you know, pre-cat lacquer is, you could do it in your sleep. It's super easy. It's cheap. And that's what's sort of out there. And then you get nerds like me who are like, well, what if we got what's the newest best thing? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm uh, fascinated about... Um you know, lacquers and that whole world of that finish after the paint's on or when you're dealing with a natural product that you want to cover. Because I feel like, you know, the, the polyurethane just comes in first and everyone seems to go there. But I've just had such big problems with poly over the years. It's just yellowing out really bad or... Um, yeah, well, mostly it's that yellowing or that sort of plasticky feel that never seems to fully cure. And uh, so there's, there's so many, so many cool options. The and that's what we love to hear from the, the design community. What are you, what come to me and you tell me what you want that to look like? And I have a wealth of knowledge of a ton of different products. They all have positive negatives to them. One will have won't one will amber over time one will yellow one will not do anything one will be durable one will not be so like there's so much out there but yeah. there's just not lots of coating not a lot of painters want to 
they're going, this is the one I know works. I don't want to try something new. Here, yeah. here, use this. And they sort of like one size fits all the paint spec. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I'm pretty passionate about giving clients what they want. And that means, all right, let's open up and let's, we use a, a wide range of different products. Mm. Um, one that you might be interested in that we have found a lot of success with very lately um, is a product called Vero Metal. And so we have a product, it's powdered metal that we mix up in a polyester binder and we can spray it, brush it, trowel it. And what you're left with is actually metal. So I can put real copper on any surface. Wow. Like, you name it. There's not a surface I can't put actual copper on. Really? So we can do very creative things. Oftentimes it's still a luxury product. We or it looks like we're probably going to do a project in Houston where everything was built out of aluminum and they're shipping it to us to coat in brass. And it will have a thin layer of real brass for a fraction of the cost. But we're doing a project in Buffalo right now where we're troweling on brass in a, in a very tight knockdown look yeah. Yeah. on a curved de a desk at this beautiful commercial building. They have all this old brass everywhere. And they put this new front desk in and it's curved out of MDF and we're going to coat it in real metal. And get it to have the patina of the other stuff? So, wow. Yeah, we're going to patina it with chemicals to, and then we can lock the patina in with other products. So it's, the sky's the limit. It's guys like you who really get the most out of it. It's architects who are specking this for us, mostly. I'm doing some designers who have like a piece of furniture we'll put metal on. Yeah. But as an architect, now it's like, okay, you can look at something and say, well, I want to have this weird, crazy detail covered in copper that would either be incredibly expensive or almost impossible to do out of sheet copper. Sure. Um, and then you can, in many cases, that we'll put it right next to actual sheet copper and they will patina and age at the same rate. Outside? Yes. Wow. Yes. See, it's amazing. I'm glad I'm on this call. Totally. Not that I wasn't for other reasons, but <laughs> it's yeah, that's, uh, that's, 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 that's fantastic. It's, it's something else. I'll have to get you some samples. You know, it's the more we use it and, and have learned to dial it in. I just did a, um, like a little hutch, like a two door little vanity thing. Mm -hmm. And it has these like fluted doors and the whole thing is nickel silver. And it, it's polished up to high gloss. And this MDF piece of wood came into my shop and it's leaving with a coat of nickel silver on it. It's unbelievable. That's crazy. Because it's, you know, whatever, $10 worth of MDF. <laughs> and then it looks like, yeah. it looks crazy when you're done. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah nice, nice. Just don't get it wet. MDF, man. Don't I know. <laughs> we coated it on all sides and now it's coated in a meta in real metal powder and polyester resin. Oh, yeah. So you're good. Yes. Uh, that's what we hope. Do you guys do um like sort of faux finishing uh as well? Kind of where we draw the line. There are okay. way better faux artists than me and my team. Yeah. But um what about the um I'm trying to think? It's like a uh, clear coating that gives it a little bit of, of rustic feel. What's the name of that? I'm drawing a blank, but it's a, uh, like a glaze. Glaze. 
Yeah. yeah. We, we, those types of projects, I like when you come to me and you go, here's a sample. I want this substrate over here to look like this sample over here. Okay. I'm a science coatings nerd. I will reverse engineer yeah. what is there and I'll make it happen. Got it. But if you come to me and you're like, you know, I kind of have this like rough idea of some like this mural is going to look like, no, there's yeah. artists who will do a mural for you. Yeah, yeah. They, like scientist. And I want to follow a strict recipe to get a very predictable outcome. Good. No, I got it. Well, I think that the uh, glaze is pretty straightforward. Yes. Um, we, we can glaze some kitchen cabinets okay. and you get dirty. Dirties it up a little bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> The opposite of what you really want to do. <laughs> Most of what it's funny because, especially in New England, I I just don't see a lot of that right now. We do we're right now we're doing lots of high gloss. Okay, that's so what we're looking for. Yeah, um, I'm sure you've seen other people attempt high gloss. Not every painter should probably be playing with high gloss, uh, especially not when the client sees my work and thinks that when they get someone using high gloss, they're getting that kind of work. Yeah. Um. Have you ever done a full gloss room in one of your homes? Never. But I've seen a few and been sort of blown away. Um, a lot of the in, a lot of sort of that level is an interior designer who's sort of like tracking with that, you know, the latest mojo. Um, we're going to probably stick more to here's the room here's the size here's the proportion here's the trim here's the ceiling detail um and then you know we lock arms with someone who's like super into colors and and um, sheen and all that um i can say i'm learning all the time but um usually those are probably coming out of from from our projects usually coming from a interior designer who's sort of driving that ship a little bit more um but I'm learning and I'm watching, so I can sort of pick up their tricks. Yeah, <laughs> whenever, whenever the situation allows. But I, someone with a lot of confidence. We just finished up uh, today. I did the walkthrough. Two full rooms, black gloss. Wow, it's unwild. <laughs> you know, two hundred year old brownstone in Beacon Hill. Yeah, it has sheets of black glass on all sides. <laughs> it's out of control. Does it mirror to each other, almost like infinity kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> it's, I made. I got to make a great video walking up to one wall, turning, yeah. walking up to the next, turning, walking up to the next, and then looking at the ceiling, and it's just the same person everywhere. Right. right. <laughs> um, wow. That's. Uh, I'll, I'll look for that video. Yeah, that. Those are the kinds of things that I like doing because they're so challenging. It, yeah. you know that's that's not just like slapping on some satin white paint and moving on yeah that's that's the a game or it shows right away about oh my gosh yeah <laughs> and the clients that are paying for that aren't gonna take anything but perfect that's that's what happens generally and mm -hmm. but and the nice thing is they lead to more a lot we do a lot of gloss front doors that's like our bread and butter Oh, really? Okay. Because everyone can afford, well, not everyone, but all yeah. the high-end custom homes can afford, you know, a $5,000 front door. Yeah. Not a $30,000, $40,000 room. Right. But the front door, you'll have to, I'll have to have you come to the shop. You'll see one of our entry doors in real life, and they're 
they're pieces of art that you get to put in your front door. That's cool. And uh, well, how do you keep it from weathering? That's always the issue wherever we are. So fine paint <clears throat> syrup is the longest lasting exterior paint that you can put on any surface. That Interesting. I'm All right. So it's a marine grade enamel. So it's going to last longer outside than any paint. Uh, that's the the most cost effective best the best way to to start specking fine paints in my opinion for architects is on trim on the shingle style homes on the water where mm -hmm. i the fine paints eco not the oil but the alkyd acrylic mm -hmm. it's going to last a solid 10 years 12 years it's going to last twice as long as the best for Williams paint uh, okay. and still look brand new so if you is that on is that on cedar boral pvc what name it yeah okay we coat no up problem. and okay. so if you were you know we know what those how look what goes into those homes and if i paint that trim when it's built as new construction and it get you get twice the life out of it mm. that's a significant savings and a beautiful price per year even if i charge 40 percent more in the initial paint job yeah no if you can prove it out um, yeah. and we have now right. now i have seen and i there's a we just did a, a project actually the firehouse in newport at the residence mm -hmm. um that was a client we just finished three sides of the house it was all brick but they did fine paints of europe on the trim yeah so three sides of that place were 12 year old trim we didn't touch it we oh there was one side that got really beat by the sun and we just scuffed it and brushed another coat on and they'll get another 10 years. That's amazing. You know, I know I know that house, uh, so that's, that's cool. Yeah. It's on Car Show, I think. But. Yep. It's a beautiful place. And that's the perfect example for me now to be able to show clients. Because I, I have colleagues around the country who have 10-year-old, 15-year-old fine paints jobs they can point to. But okay. I didn't. And I didn't do the original painting on that project. Okay. But I was able, they were able to tell me about the story of how they tore the whole thing down and rebuilt it and blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. And they were selling it actually, it just sold. And we only needed to paint that one side 12 years later, which is, okay. you know. And they use that, that product. Yeah. Oh, Prospect Hill Street. Yeah. I know the Prospect Hill. There's a couple of firehouses in Newport that are residents now, but yeah. Is that what, it was at Prospect Hill? It's... Oh, man, I get the address now. I still have to invoice that project. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hang on tight. <laughs> Great clients. Have you ever worked with Newport Renewables as GC? Uh, no. He's building them a new house, I think, now. Oh. oh, cool. Who are your favorite GCs? Do you work with a lot? Or you... Oh, man. Yeah, we, we do 150 projects a year, so... It's kind of like 150 different favorite contractors that are on that list. But uh, there's there's a lot, you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like weird saying one because then I leave yeah. out like a ton of other ones. But uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of great tradespeople, I think, in Newport. A lot of great GCs that we've worked with and have served their clients really well. You know, when the, when the, when the GC gives the client a good experience, it makes my job a ton easier. 
right? Because I've got a happy client who's thrilled about their build and the process. So for me, I'm just looking for the low drama, you know, we'll figure it out. We got this uh, kind of guys. There's, there's, there's issues that come up on every job. It's just how you handle them. And so we've got a lot of contractors that I think handle those issues really well with clients. Um, and so we just want to keep going back, back to those guys. I've always found that the best GCs are just these amazing, like steady eddies. Oh yeah. They never get up. They never get nope. down. They're just like, yeah. All yeah. right. All right. Yeah. You can't freak them out. You can't rattle them. You can't. Like, All right. We'll figure it out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Same job. You know, similar jobs, two different contractors. The the, the difference in uh, you know that that being a skill set, right? To to sort of herd that many cats all together in this finely tuned orchestra is amazing. You know that 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 they can pull it off uh, without a bunch of drama, because we all know they get thrown all sorts of nonsense every day that they've got to sort of work through. So you need to have that steady mentality, not hot, not cold. And uh, it's been great to work with a lot of guys that are in that in that game. Yeah, there's some good ones over there in Newport too. Yeah, and and throughout, not just in Newport, we work with guys now all over the place. Um, so, yeah, I didn't I didn't really answer your question, but that's no, that's I, right. you know, we're, we want to be politically correct here. We don't want <laughs> enemies. This is a needs to be a win-win. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm I'm nervous now. Everyone's gonna be like, "You got 150 jobs. I'm not coming to you. You must be too busy." <laughs> That's my mentality. That I I want to treat every client or contractor like this is the only job we've ever had. Just you. So I, I don't even like even saying like how many jobs we kind of kick through the office, but um, we do try to make it sure that everybody feels like we're just working for them. There's nothing else on our schedule. It's just this their deal. So yeah. uh, I think that's. Uh, you know, we try to do that. It's obviously difficult when you got a, you know, a lot of different projects going on at the same time, but that's what we, I, we, we, like, we like it. Like, and we're a little different. I can't, but it's like, when I'm on your project, you're, you're all that matters yeah. and we're going to give you a hundred percent. And if you decide you want to add a little thing over here, we're going to get it done while we're there. Yeah. But you got to be a little flexible with the start <laughs> You remember that last client, I'm treating them the way you're about to be treated. So right, right. they wanted to do one extra thing or something went wrong. So I, I need a, another week to start. But when I get to you, you will be the only one that matters. <laughs> yeah, and everybody wants to be treated like that, right? We like being treated like that when we're with somebody you know, we don't want to be their second or third string anything. So whether we're doing a monster house or helping somebody with their kitchen remodel, um, we want them to kind of feel the same way that we're, we're, we're all in on them. And uh, yeah, the scheduling thing's always tricky. It's like, especially when you're running a, a bigger company and not, mine's not huge by any stretch, but um, trying to manage like having enough work to feed everybody that you have. And then a second later, having too much work to feed the same amount of people. It's like, it's hard to keep that in the same 
it's hard to keep that so steady. And uh, we've been grateful over the years to be able to somehow run that gauntlet, uh, keeping everyone busy, but not, uh, and then also not taking on too much work that we can't put out the quality that we, we strive to do uh, for each client. Yeah, how, how do you do that? Because that, that is all of companies that do what we do. That's the toughest part is. Yeah. Everybody's, everybody's in, that, in that game. You know, obviously, you, you start realizing when your schedule's so packed that you can't get a new meeting with someone for two to three weeks. You start realizing that, oh, boy, okay, we got to we gotta maybe pause some people or say, hey, can we get back to you in a little bit? Can we start in a month? Can we, you know, those types of things. And uh, checking in with our team is really helpful. We have a weekly project meeting or production meeting, I should say, where we're, we're all talking about, hey, here's what I got. Here's what I got next week. Here's what I got this week. Here's what I got next week. Really is projecting next week. And then, and then you start getting a feel for when people have daylight. And then as we have new projects, I can try to organize that so that if we can't start right away, we at least give them a definitive and then we really fight like hell to at least do what we said we were going to do because it doesn't take much to lose somebody's trust. And that's the last thing we want to do when we're working with people because we can say all these nice things about our process and, you know, we're good and we're, we got all this, you know, references, but, you can drop the ball really quickly on anything and then people remember that, not all the other stuff you did. So we try to just be people of our word, let our yes be yes. Are you no longer the point person on a project or are, are you still the, the person the client talks to? Most of the time I'm the first touch. Um, but as, as a, I also explain that I'm not gonna be the only touch and so I don't, I try to get the expectations in line that uh, here's my role and here's when you're going to see me and, you know, here's when you should call me and the whole thing so that their expectations are in line. So a lot of, a lot of a client's happiness is about meeting and setting their expectations with them and for them um, so that they know what, what to expect. Like most, most people haven't worked with an architect before, so they need, they need that. They need to kind of be told, hey, here's how, here's when you're going to interact with me. Here's my best value to you. And here's my other team's better value to you than even I will be. So I kind of tell them about the whole team. And I've got so many talented folks that work with me. It's, I'm just, we're just so lucky to have so many great people together. But um, I guess, you know, as we, as we kind of combine all those things, it sort of works out. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. Is that so? Does that limit you from growing much larger than you are now? Because at some point you wouldn't be able to be that first point of touch for everybody if you had thirty architects. Yeah, I think I think you limit out at about fifteen to eighteen total. Um, so I think we still have some room. Not that I need to be the touch point. Absolutely not. Um, and we get we have clients that. Have, have met and worked with um, our senior architects and they love them. They never call me anymore because they know it's going to, you know, I may not have the answer. They know that Jay or Ray or Brian have the answers that they're going to need. And so they then bypass me, which is fine. I, that's, 
as a business owner, you're sort of thrilled that that's happening. And so, uh, and then as they refer people, sometimes they refer people, hey, call Courts and Design, ask for Jay, um, which is music to my ears because they're super talented and I don't need to be the touch point for everyone. So that's the ethos that we're trying to create that actually anybody can pick up the phone at our office and be able to give that client the same level of service that I would give them and maybe even better is the, is the expectation that people are are treating and giving value. And of course, you don't make up something you don't know. You go and ask, you know, get back to them. People totally get that. If you say, hey, I don't know that, but I'll call you back in an hour with that answer. Um, and then, you know, as we talk about at work a lot, just got to call people back. It's amazing. Just calling people back and returning emails, calling them back, You'd think you'd think you were the you know the president of the United States because people are like oh my gosh you called me back this is so great because in a in a busy economy that we are now minus the COVID stuff but I mean the trades are slammed right everybody's cranking um, which is the opposite of what you hear on the news but it's obvious to all of us that things are cranking but it's just it's interesting that a lot of times I just hear well they never called me back you know. The trade, the trade, the sub, the contractor, never call me back. Like, how do you run a business like that? It's crazy. <laughs> call them back and say you can't do it. At least then, at least, at least you're done. But to not call them seems like such a travesty for me. So now, we try to not. That the bar's low in my industry, but it also means that it's really easy to succeed. On some, <laughs> I, I do get it all the time. So you answer the phone. Like, yeah. Yeah. You called me back. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty darn good at I answer most unless I'm talking to a client or I'm on the phone already, I answer every phone call. Yeah. And people love that. Yeah, it seems so like basic for business, right? Just answer the phone, call them back. Even you know, people leave a message and you call them back. Drop a line on your website and you can follow up with an email and a call. Yeah. Right. You're rocking. I'm like, no, that's that's what everyone should be doing. I, I can't believe no one else did that. That's crazy. Um, how has social media been for your company? I mean, that's how I originally reached out is through social media. Who yeah. made social media? What's that sort of looking like? What's it going to look like? Yeah, so um, interesting enough, remember I was telling you about how signage, I was like, oh, man, everyone's going to see I'm busy. This is going to be terrible. Um, at some level, I had the same sort of like inaccurate, terrible, like social media, like, why would they hire an architect they've never met or they're not referred to? Uh, but of course, I was wrong, right? So uh, it just turns out that um, uh, Michelle from our office loves social media, her, her sort of role in past lives was being a social media um, correspondent for companies and so we have her as our office manager but her full passion is social media so it wasn't much to release the hounds with her and just say michelle you want to take this let's rock let's rock and she said well instagram's it not your your fuddy-duddy facebook stuff so um i said oh really i don't know i don't know <laughs> that's how close i am on social media stuff so here we are um she posts a lot and sometimes I'll kind of feed her a post that I'll take and then she'll 
scrub it up, make it look a little bit more professional and put it out for us. So um, we should have got our act together here to get uh, the at courts and design architecture. <laughs> she will be. I'll be getting quite a talk <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> but whatever. Yeah, uh, we'll... I put it down here at the bottom so yeah, thank you. you can see it and, and be able to check you out. Uh, if you. I post about it later, I will. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. So have you gotten a job through social media that you could pinpoint was from Instagram? Well, I'll tell you that since I've decided that we're going to open up the gates and get Instagram going and more Facebook posts and all that stuff, um, we went from, and this may be COVID related too, so we went from one or two website inquiries a month to like five a week. So me being the idiot, thinking that, you know, we don't want a bunch of tire kickers. It was sort of like, oh my gosh, look at this. This is like, and when I say, could it be some COVID stuff where everyone, no one's going to cocktail parties and finding out who their friend used. Everyone's just basically online all day. Um, not all day, but you know what I mean? More presence there. And so that's how you're, that's how most people are, are talking to people these days is through those sort of links. So is our Instagram driving people to our website? I think that's kind of a, the point, I suppose. And then they fill out a questionnaire about, hey, this is my project and can someone reach out to me? So yeah, it's been been like a flood. So I'm here to report my hat in my hand that uh, social media was amazing and still it's is. Good to be wrong in this situation. <laughs> I'm really wrong a lot of times, especially marketing fronts. <laughs> My wife started mine and I was very against it. And okay. It's the lifeblood of my company. I would be nothing without Instagram. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm going to have to send a message to Michelle. I'd like, I'd like to talk to her more about Instagram because I've yeah. devoted a lot of time and energy to not mastering but getting close to at least having a thorough understanding of how it works and what works and yeah i'm definitely learning i'm a i'm an infant in the whole thing and i'm really grateful for her uh for taking charge and understanding it and really using it to its fullest uh wade paquin from uh wkp which is a builder uh in newport and a friend of mine on a bunch of fronts he he was we saw him sort of start blowing up with it and started you know sort of hey can you come tell us about this what are you doing how are you doing it how does it work you know and he kind of really took tons of time to show us and tell us and teach us things so hats off to him uh, for sure and then like you're saying my buddy ron bowler texted me like an hour ago hey you're gonna be on with kz i was like how do you know <laughs> so i i uh you know just like so many kind of followers such a cool way to network with people that you would normally never cross paths with it's it's brightened my world and expanded my knowledge and yeah. I, I have a whole network of people now that i would call on for different technical questions and you know, you meet all these different people with expertise in different areas. And I mean, it's phenomenal. It is neat. Yeah, it is really neat. And I'm just at the beginning, so I can't imagine how much my mind's going to get blown as I, as I learn from everybody. 
you, you'll get to connect with other architects and like in a way that's not, you know, at a cocktail party and yeah. they'll see, oh, I saw this thing or have, have you checked this thing out? And you'll be, you get to be inspired and communicate and develop friendships in this very powerful way. Yeah. No, I look forward to it. Cool. Well, at the end of the show, I'm going to wrap, mm -hmm. we'll wrap up in a little bit. So we have some standard questions that we ask everybody. Um, okay. A lot of them are, are well, there's not that many. So they, there's not a lot, but a few of them are, we generally, they're paint focused in a way. So yep. we'll just make them architecture, take like the, an architecture plant. So yep. we would normally ask people, what is your favorite piece of paint paraphernalia? But as an architect, what is your favorite piece of architecture paraphernalia, whether it be a tool, a software program, uh, something that helps you do what you do? What's your favorite piece of paraphernalia so this is gonna sound really bad not maybe not bad but so the world of architecture is full of computers so hand drafting with a couple different thicknesses markers and trace paper is my go-to and I, I I wasn't that great at art as a kid or you know I think I was average whatever but I've just learned to draw like an architect draws. You can learn any any skill and it's the same that way. And I, I get comments, wow, you're so good at drawing. You must have been good at this. And I kind of like, yeah, I just sort of like copied really good people for a long time until I sort of picking up like how they do it and how they get it. And I just stare at anything that's hand drawn and try to learn like how those guys put that together, just pen and ink kind of stuff. Um, and so so just drawing freely like that on trace paper where I can run three or four sketches over top of something in, in a very quick manner, I can produce a cool hand-drawn drawing, which is so special to people because computers have taken over everything else, that to get a hand-drawn drawing feels like this totally crazy, unique piece of like art, which it kind of isn't, but um, <laughs> so it's sort of backwards, I know, because SketchUp and all these podium rendering pro pro programs that we use um, in the office make things look like photographs, amazing photographs, like better than photographs of our work with trees and birds flying through them and grass growing and the sun setting on the project. You know, it's just the perfect atmosphere, which is great. But uh, for me, I, a hand-drawn drawing, uh, you know, of someone's house showing them for the first time what their front elevation is going to look like in a hand sketch is kind of really neat. I get to connect with my client in a very visceral way by doing that. And I, I just love it. So, and it's fun for me to do and it, I can do it fairly quickly now after doing it for so many years um, that it just brings a lot of joy to me. And I, I think to them too. That's awesome. Are you familiar with Meyer and Meyer architects uh, out of Boston? No, I was gonna. I thought that was Richard Meyer, but no. You should check out Meyer and Meyer Architects. Okay, they their stuff is <laughs> out of control, and a lot of times, I mean, they they probably I don't know them well, but I, I hope to have someone on soon from them actually. But yep. I, I would guess their average project is like a twenty million dollar custom home, okay. the most insane homes you've ever seen. Okay, and. 
on, on Instagram, they show a lot of the hand drawings first and then the, the building after. And they're oh, favorite things in the world to look at. That somebody was like, oh, let me just like sketch this out. It looks like, like almost like cartoonish or like fanciful and not real. And then you see like it really got built. Like it's so cool. Wow. Yeah. So that, that yeah. Uh, I'll check them out because yeah. I, I like being inspired by that because I mean that sort of getting a computer to do what you want to do, which is a technique and a skill in itself, no doubt. Um, it's sort of harnessing the computer a lot. And so it's hard to feel totally um, like you did it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I've done that. I mean, when I was, when I was a kid in, you know, in a, in a, in a firm, I got a lot of attention because I could do 3D renderings back when those were sort of novel. And so I, I made my I made my career out of like impressing the older brass with my fancy computer renderings. But now I'm sort of falling back into, man, a hand sketch is what I can do better than a kid out of school who knows the latest software and can kill it, which is great. We need that for sure. Uh, but be able to hand draw is kind of neat. And you can sometimes do it right in front of the client. Um, which is really a neat experience for them as well. Uh, so anyway, that's kind and of my more organic because especially when you see Meyer and Meyer, they have very organic, like you say, fit the landscape type of architecture. Yep. And you know, it's not made by drawing and connecting straight lines in dots. <laughs> you know, it's flowy and yeah. you know, which is obviously I would imagine much easier to do by hand. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, curves and. And the, and the freedom that uh, trace paper and just some simple pens can do. Um, and you kind of take them anywhere too, right? It doesn't, it could be on a ferry somewhere and be sketching out something really awesome. You don't need a whole setup and a mouse and a monitor and all that stuff. So I sound like I'm a, a thousand years old right now saying these things, but um, yeah, hand drawing has, is, a, is kind of a neat way to communicate. Um, that's sort of a little different now because it's kind of so relegated to just, um, I don't think in school they really sort of push that a lot because computers are so powerful that it just doesn't feel that cool or the latest, the latest toy anymore, but like, like, like to do both. All right. Well, we normally ask people about the, a DIY, a professional painter about a DIY painting tip. <laughs> and it, it may not be very safe to be asking for a DIY architecture tip, but if you have something that people, as it relates to design or something like that, some sort of DIY tip okay. have. Sure, sure. So a couple of things that I find that's really helpful for someone who's, let's say, sketching out their house on the exterior, interior as well, is that the proportions of a window or proportions of a house or proportions of a door, the closer they get to one by 1.6, the better it will look. So if you take, you know, 10 and then 16, whatever increments, inches or feet or whatever it is, um, the closer you get to a rectangle vertically, that's one by 1.6, you will have a better looking house, building, column, whatever it is. Well, columns sort of fall into a different realm, but that proportion, as soon as you draw it, you're like, okay, that's what it is. But as you're 
as you're sketching around or looking at things, windows, doors, uh, you know, even the shape of a building, shape of a room. Um, and I didn't come up with that. Um, so that's, let's call it the golden rectangle. And it's, you know, the Greeks figured it out, but that looks the best. And so what happens is you, you sketch and sketch and or golden ratio, someone chimed in, uh, golden rectangle is what I've heard it called. When you sketch and sketch and it doesn't feel right, doesn't look right, and you're not sure why, if you check the proportions and go to those, it'll look better and even and kind of lock in. So that's a little tip. That's awesome. I, I love that. And proportion is, that's something you think about a lot, right? So, you know, ultimately we're trying to make things look cool in the most simple way, right? Yeah. So we want it to be exciting. We want it to be pleasing to the eye, whatever it is, whether it's a built-in dresser or a front door or an entry portico or the roof line. Um, so we're, we're, we're always playing with what we would call proportions in the design world. Um, and if you get those off, it just doesn't look right and you're not sure why and your client doesn't know any better till it's built and doesn't know why they don't like their house, right? So um, it's a constant game of working on those. And I think as you just get used to drawing things that start to click, you start to realize what what that really means when you say the word proportion. It's sort of hard, it doesn't, it doesn't fit into a box of a definition necessarily, other than some of those tricks like the golden rectangle and some other things that, you know, columns. We've all seen columns that look wrong, right? I drove past the house the other day and I was like, the house looks great. Those columns are a total disaster. Why did they use that? And it's because someone just didn't understand like the proportionality of things. Uh, there's a great book called Get Your House Right, which covers from like early American uh, colonial architecture all the way through today as to why things look good and why other things look bad. And when you mentioned before about the sort of McMansion boom in the early, early 2000s, um, they, like no one was paying attention to those. It was just bigger is better. And uh, books like Get Your House Right follow the pattern books of early colonial architecture, which said, you only build buildings if you do it this way. The frieze should be this big if you're doing this. And, you know, the, the, the crown molding needs to match up there. Now, it doesn't really just apply to traditional architecture. It applies to everything, because when you look at a really cool modern building that stretches and pulls at the proportions a little bit, they still fall back to those classic proportions to make them look good. Because when they don't, it just looks like a train wreck that's just called modern architecture, right? So uh, even even the, the the leaders in the in the modern movement who would say, oh, you know, we don't follow any of the traditional rules, they still follow the ones that make their buildings look good. <laughs> I love it. Hey, I, quick question. I we had some we had the school this weekend, and people were here from around the country, and they. We were on the east side of Providence and they were looking at a house and it had a, like a little stoop they would walk up to the side of the house. And then it had like the overhang with like some like scroll work, little corbel. What do you call that overhang? Is there a term for it? Like, Is it just over the front door? Yeah, it was oh. not a fancy house. Yeah, uh, I would call it a canopy, even though when people say that they think of like a fabric thing, but 
it would still be a canopy. Probably had brackets going back, not columns. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It had yeah. it had corbel like brackets that went back. Yep. Right, right. Canopy. So I I call those canopies. Maybe there's another trickier word that I'm forgetting or didn't know in the first place, but. Um, yeah, entry canopy or something like that. That's tremendous be because we're there's nine of us standing around and no one had a clue. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could say canopy because um, uh, that's what I think. That's what I'd call it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now you've just you've demonstrated tremendous knowledge and expertise. We really thank you for being here. But now we need you to humble yourself by telling us your biggest horror story, the worst project that's ever happened when you designed something and you, it all, I'm sure it didn't collapse. But <laughs> some like horrors, like the worst, most embarrassing moment. Um, you know, the ones that are like the probably the most painful is when um, I didn't follow the process that I follow today and we drew a quick drawing for somebody and they were like, that's fine. Let's just build it. And they went and bid it. Architecture is forever. Like they don't take down buildings. It's there. It's going to be there. It's going to be there in 10 years and 20 years. And so, you know, Newport's a Newport or Quinnick islands, kind of small and you end up driving down those streets again and you'd sort of drive past something that you drew maybe younger in my younger years if you will and uh, i know this isn't a specific story but it's sort of like oh man like come on man i, I was better i'm better than that you know <laughs> give me another shot at that one um and then uh you know but the people who live in it think it's the best thing that's ever happened so that sort of makes me feel a little better that that you know even though i'm not going to put that on my website or something or Instagram, um, you know, that someone's getting joy out of that building and probably thinks it's just fine. But I, I just know I could do better. So th those are kind of my trickiest ones. I think on the other side of it, it's, it's working with a client that you're just like, you want, you give them your left arm and they just sort of feel like uh, that you just didn't do it for them. Like you, you let them down somehow and and uh, as a people pleaser, which I know is maybe a good and a bad thing all at once, you know, when that happens, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm devastated. That, that, that's a real bother to me because I want to give people the best experience they can and, you know, give my God given talents to show them my best. But at the same time, you know, when it's not reciprocated, when they don't like it or, you know, they want to move on to a different architect, that that's a painful one. So I didn't really answer your question with one specific one because I couldn't think of one that was so a total thing. You've never had, like, a house that was supposed to be, like, you, like, moved the decimal point one over and it was tall <laughs> and skinny instead of... No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of a... It's kind of a slow grind uh, architecture, right? It's... So you, you hopefully can catch the major bombs uh, on your way through. And there's a lot of hands that touch it. And, you know, you want to be critical of your own work. So you don't want to let something out the door that, you know, you're not proud of and don't think is the way to go. Um, but sometimes there's clients that are, make that a little challenging. But as we know, all clients are challenging at some time or level. So you can't push it off that, well, it's the client made me do it. You know, you got to, 
you got to be a salesman. You got to uh, commit to them. And, and ultimately, if they're happy with, you know, that solution, then it's their house at the end of the day, right? They're going to live there and stare at the thing every day. So you got to give them, give them that. Awesome. Well, Spencer, thanks for joining me on ZK Live. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, my, uh, my pleasure. This has been fun. I, I do a podcast myself for interviewing people. So uh, it's kind of neat to be on the other side of that. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, have a good night. And you too. All right. See you. Bye.